1: Hello, you spooktacular people. Welcome to this 108th episode of the History Ghost Bump podcast. Ghost tours for the theater of the mind. I am your host, Diane. And this is Denise. And we are joined by special guest co-host, Stephen Pappas. How are you, Stephen?
2: I'm good. Thanks for having me again.
1: Well, we're excited to have you on because you suggested this location and are going to share a bunch of information about it. And that is Old Salem. Now, I never knew that there was an old Salem. I knew that there was Winston-Salem, but I didn't know they were two different cities and that there was an old Salem. So it's going to be very interesting to find
2: out about it. Absolutely. It was about 10 minutes from me growing up. So I went on a million field trips there and it's always just kind of been a part of my personal history. And once I got old enough and realized it had some hauntings, it was one of the first things I actually thought about to write you guys about, but I wanted to make sure I got enough information.
1: Well, I guess we're going to take everybody who's listening on a field trip with us today. It's a field
0: trip time, spectacular people.
1: But before we do that, we want to point you at our website, historyghostbump.com. And Stephen, if people want to send us some feedback, where can they do that?
2: That would be historyghostbump at gmail.com.
1: And we did get some emails. First one is from Deborah, And she said, I love your podcast. Thanks to Bizarre States for the recommendation. I like the interaction of the hosts and guest host mom. I enjoy both history and the paranormal. And then she let us know she's going to be visiting Disney World this week. We also got an email from Scott who let us know that he really enjoys our podcast and gave us a recommendation of a place to check out in Coulterville, California. That's very old and very haunted. And it's actually a location that he's gone in to look around. So thank you, Scott, for sending your suggestion to us. And we also heard from Matthew. And he was in St. Augustine and went through the old jail there, Denise. And he took a really creepy picture. Very creepy picture. He posted up on the Spooktacular crew. And it looked, he seems trustworthy. And it looks like a full-body apparition he captured on film.
0: Of course, he did... The unthinkable and he
1: tempted the spirits. Yes, indeed, he did. And I told him he was going to get in trouble with you for that. (laughs) So what he wrote about that is my wife and I were visiting St. Augustine five years ago, close to Halloween. She had never been there before and was willing to accept the invitation after my portrayal of the eerie but beautiful city. After a day of sightseeing, shopping, and eating, which are all fabulous there, it was now time for a ghost tour. We chose a tour that began at the old city jail, which is where this gets interesting. As you know, the cell room is a rectangle. We pushed our way to the back that were lined with more cells. The room was lit with only a red light hanging above in the center of the room. As the tour guide was explaining its dark times, my mind was set on finding proof of ghosts with my camera. I placed my camera on the bar of the cell. No flash was used, so I was to not interrupt the others, but to also make sure the picture was not littered with dust, moisture, or a passing bug, which is what an orb is. The tour of the cell was over and the crowd was exiting. I began to grow impatient and provoked whatever may be in the corridor to show itself. I whispered under my breath for whatever may lie in the shadows to prove its existence. I snapped away while my wife said we should go before we're asked to leave. Denise would have been saying something else. I kept snapping in the same position as the last of the crowd proceeded in front of us. With each snap, nothing stood out from the others except the movement of the crowd as a red blur. And then snap. I turned to my wife with this look as if I'd won the lottery. I got one, I said, as if I were speaking to Egon Spangler. I turned the camera to her in which she followed it with words of choice such as holiness toward fecal matter. And then in the picture you'll see three people. On the right, a taller woman. In the center, a shorter and more in focus woman. Where the camera was pointing and to the left, another taller woman. And then in the center behind that shorter woman, you see the head, the shoulders, and the eyes of something. And actually, what I will do is put this picture up in the show notes for today's show so that the listeners who are not a part of the Spooktacular Crew can check that out. Absolutely. Speaking of the Spooktacular Crew, we want to welcome Matthew. Hey, Matthew. Lindsay. Hi, Lindsay. Kylie. Hey, Kylie. Julie. Hi, Julie. Nellie.
0: Hey, Nellie. John. Hi, John. Ryan. Hi, Ryan. Bridget. Hey, Bridget.
1: Michael. Hi, Michael. Tiffany. Hey, Tiffany. And April. Hey, April. Lydia Miller shared with us an article that she had written over on Odysseyonline.com. And it's an article that's about the 12 classic horror movies, A Beginner's Guide. And there was a lot of great movies in there. So I highly recommend you guys go check that out. Over on the website, Angie had been listening to the Biltmore Estate. And I think that we corrected this before. But if not, she just wanted to make sure that we did know that George Vanderbilt's descendants do operate the Biltmore Estate, that it's not a part of the city. The city of Asheville does not manage it. It's still the descendants. So, And she said it's a beautiful, magical place. Didn't have any ghosts or paranormal experiences while she was there. Definitely looking forward to checking that out. Yes, we are. On the fan page, we heard from Pooey, who said, hi, I heard on today's episode that you might be doing a haunted tour at St. Augustine in April. We're going to be on vacation there for my birthday in April. So she was like, hey, maybe we could meet up. So we are going to be doing the Dark of the Moon tour of the St. Augustine Lighthouse again. We're going to do that on April 23rd, which is a Saturday.
0: Yes. So if you want to be a part of that, let us know.
1: Lindsay. Also, message us there said recently binge listened to Bizarre States and decided to look you guys up based on Jessica Chobot's glowing review. Absolutely love your podcast. And as a fellow Central Floridian and ex Disney cast member, totally proud that this amazing show hails from Orlando. And she hopes to run into us both sometime. I think we're going to try to get her to go up to the dark of the moon with us. That'd be yes. cool. And we'll have to meet up at Disney sometime too. That'll be fun. And Bridget said, I just discovered this show a few weeks ago and love it. I love the combination of history and the paranormal in the show. Besides, you can't have one without the other. Ain't that the truth? She said, I have some stories of experiences from my days of working at the Henry Ford Museum. Hmm. So we'd love to hear those, Bridget. Then on our previous podcast, we did the Franklin Battlefield, and we got some comments about that. Bob Sherfield asked a really... Interesting question, Denise. Serious question. What was the standard of officer training during this point in U.S. history? Did West Point exist yet? Did they have much contact with the European military when it came to training and tactics, etc.? By some of the information you've passed on through the podcast you've done covering the Civil War, they seem to make a lot of mistakes. Neither one of us are military historians, so I was like, I know West Point existed back then, but I don't know, because, yeah, you're right, they did make a lot of stupid mistakes, it seemed like. Well, Jill Phoenix said, Hood's Texas Brigade fought in every battle of the Civil War except one. Fort Hood in Killian, Texas was named after General Hood, as was Bell County, the county Fort Hood is located in. The Confederate soldiers did not train at West Point, however, several of their OICs did, officers in charge. For the most part, there was no formal military training like we have today. Even the North had green recruits who had never seen battle nor trained for it. The Civil War was during the dawn of our military prowess, and since the U.S. was still quite young, they used tactics derived from Europe, such as company fronts as well as troop movements. What doesn't make sense to us today was completely logical back then. On another note, casualty means injured and dead, so I'm curious to find out if the generals were injured or killed during this battle, because we had pointed out that there were 14 generals that were casualties on the Confederate side, and I don't even know how many were on the other side. That's a fascinating question. It would be interesting to know. Maybe we have some military historians listening out there and you know a little bit more about the Civil War and could fill in a little bit of the holes there about, because that seems like a lot of generals to have in one war, and I don't know if it was just... You know, what, these were brigadier generals, these were lower level generals, who knows. But that's a lot of cooks in the kitchen, as they say. <laughs> yes, it is. Tracy Duhon, Denise, had actually been to the Lot's house and she shared some pictures with us over in the Spooktacular crew. And she said, and I did experience something odd on my tour of the Rest Haven Cemetery in Franklin. As I walked around listening to the reenactors tell their stories, I was standing at the back of the group. My hair is short and it felt like someone took the fingers and kind of flipped them lightly right on my hairline. I honestly thought someone was trying to mess with me. So I slowly turned and looked up and down and around to see what could have done it, but there was nothing or no one behind me. Oh, geez. I got an odd picture I put on here a good while back. It was taken on my phone, so of course it's grainy or pixelated, but still I've been to many places around the world and never had anything happen. I definitely plan on returning to Franklin to check out more of their historic hot spots. And then Mark Shu left us a comment over on the website, and he said, I enjoy your podcast, especially the serious consideration given to the real history of the places you talk about. Too many historical ghost story outfits pass on legend as fact. I'm looking forward to listening to your Franklin podcast, as I had a strange experience myself on the grounds where the Battle of Nashville was fought, although I wasn't aware of what that was at the time. I woke in the middle of the night to see a Confederate soldier walking past my bed. That's like the Holy Grail. And notice that his feet were somewhere beneath the floor. So it's not like you can say, well, maybe that was really somebody walking in my room. I told myself I was dreaming and went back to sleep. Again, Denise, here's another one of those people who just rolls over and goes back to sleep. Yeah. I would <laughs> I'd be, be like, out of the room. And my sheets would probably be wet. That's a great story, Mark. Thanks for you sharing know, that. I wonder
0: if the feet were underneath the floor or if there were no feet.
1: And then John McDonald joined us in the spectacular crew, and he shared a really interesting story with us. Actually, several interesting stories. He's had a very haunting life. As a young child in Kings Park, New York, I used to see an older lady dressed in black with a white scarf and hat walk down the hall and through doors when the doors were closed. And the basement was unfinished, all cement. I would hear voices and screams. Yes, Dad said it was spooky, but when I was in my 30s, he told me he got the house cheap because of some murdered people there. Oh, Oh, (laughs) jeez! A couple times after we relocated to California, I was not the only one to see something. Once late at night, early in the a.m., a good friend of my mom and stepfather was over, and we were chatting in the dining room. We both saw a reflection in the sliding glass door of someone cross-by behind us. We were the only ones awake, and the room suddenly got cold. His aunt had died the previous day, and he claimed that a member of his family would see or hear the departed one last time. The last one I described was when I was a young adult, but again, as a child in Laguna Niguel, my grandfather died in the hall outside the bedroom door. The fire team came in the days before paramedics and were stomping through the hall, my mom told me. I did not wake up, but I remember talking to my grandfather for hours, although I could not see him. He kept saying, it was okay, everything was okay. I was told I was dreaming. Last... And this is really interesting. Last on March 24th, 1985, I had a severe car accident. I was taken to Stony Brook Hospital in New York, DOA. I had a near death experience and saw my same grandfather after he'd been dead 13 years. He told me I had to come back. Oh, wow. All right. Are you guys ready to go to Old Salem? Yes, we are. Yes. Become an executive producer of the History Goes Bump podcast for as little as a buck a month. For $5 a month, you can access exclusive content like the Haunted True Crime bonus cast. And for $10 and above a month, you get all that plus awesome History Goes Bump gear. Check out patreon.com slash historygoesbump for more information. Or you can give us a one-time donation by clicking the donate button at historygoesbump.com. History is full of oddities, curiosities, mysteries, and the truly bizarre. Welcome to This Moment in Oddity. This Moment in Oddity was suggested by Robert Sherfield. Was the life of Violet Jessup charmed or cursed? Violet was the daughter of Irish immigrant sheep farmers, and she was born in Argentina. She moved with her family to England after her father passed away. She helped to support the family by working as a stewardess on cruise liners. Her first job was aboard the RMS Olympic in 1911. On September 20th of that year, the Olympic collided with the Royal Navy cruiser HMS Hawk. Neither ship sank, but a watertight compartment in the Olympic did fill up. Violet was uninjured in the accident. She next worked on the ship HMS Titanic. And as we all know from history, Titanic will sink. After the horrible collision with the iceberg, Violet helped women and children board lifeboats. She later stepped onto Lifeboat 16 and was handed a baby to care for until the Carpathia came to the rescue. Violet had survived a second cruise shipwreck. Violet moved to the RMS Britannic, which had been converted to a hospital ship during World War I. That ship struck a mine on November 10, 1916. Violet was once again helping people into lifeboats and getting aboard one herself. She survived yet again. And even though she had three brushes with death aboard ocean liners, Violet went right back to work aboard a cruise liner. We're not sure if she was charmed or cursed, but the fact that she experienced three ocean disasters and lived certainly is odd. Welcome. We have been expecting you. <laughs> This Day in History
0: This Day in History was brought to us by Jessica Bell. On this day, February 27th in 1827, the first Mardi Gras is held in New Orleans. The term Mardi Gras is French and means Fat Tuesday. The Tuesday refers to the fact that this day falls on the day before Ash Wednesday, which is the last day prior to Lent. Lent is a 40-day season of prayer and fasting observed by the Roman Catholic Church and many other Christian denominations, which ends on Easter Sunday. The origin of Fat Tuesday is believed to have come from the ancient pagan custom of parading a fat ox through the town streets. Such pagan holidays were filled with excessive eating, drinking, and general bodiness prior to a period of fasting. The New Orleans Mardi Gras tradition began in 1827 when a group of students inspired by their experiences studying in Paris donned masks and jester costumes and staged their own Fat Tuesday festivities. The traditional colors of Mardi Gras are purple, symbolic of justice, green, symbolic of faith, and gold, symbolic of power. New Orleans' crew tradition began with the Mystic Crew of Comus, a secret society of New Orleans businessmen that organized a torchlit procession with floats and bands in 1857. As years passed, Mardi Gras gained other lasting customs, like the throwing of beads, wearing of masks, decorating of floats, and eating of king cake. Though Louisiana remains the only state in which Mardi Gras is a legal holiday, Nearby Alabama and Mississippi acquired their own Mardi Gras traditions, and Fat Tuesday celebrations are now held across the nation.
2: The History
0: Goes Bump Podcast. When most people think of cities in North Carolina, they think of Charlotte or Raleigh. These are the state's two sprawling metropolises and home to many large industries. What most people don't think about is a city midway between the two, and that is Winston-Salem. Winston-Salem is a town that not only is the home of the headquarters of some large companies, such as Texas Pete and R.J. Reynolds, but also has a rich history which began as a religious settlement in Old Salem, still standing 250 years after being established. The town of Old Salem is considered to be an archaeological site. This is a place where people put down roots, and it seems some spirits may have as well. Come with us as we explore the history and the hauntings of Old Salem, North Carolina.
1: What's interesting about this town is it was a religious settlement, as we said there in the intro, And it's for a church that I have never heard of before. Is it Moravian?
2: Moravian.
1: Moravian. So tell us a little bit about that, because I have never heard of it before.
2: They started in the Czech Republic back before, really, the Protestant movement started. And once they got over here, they kind of expanded into what is modern-day Moravianism. It's very similar to, like, a Quaker style of religion. There are definitely differences. I'm sure if there's any Quaker or Moravian listeners, they're probably sitting there going, no, we're not. (laughs) They're just, they have a lot of similarities. They're a very music based, and the whole denomination kind of comes off as this humble version of Christianity. Everything has to do and revolves around music and service. It's really interesting growing up in Winston-Salem, being around the Moravian Church so much. It wasn't until I got outside of the city that I realized not everybody knows what that is.
1: <laughs> yeah, because it was really interesting when I looked over some of the research and stuff, I was like, I've never heard of that church. And what's really fascinating to me is I grew up as a Lutheran. So I pretty much looked at it when there was the rebellion against the Catholic Church and the Reformation was through Martin Luther. I thought that's kind of where everything started with Protestantism. And looking at this, it really actually started with the Moravians.
2: Right. And I didn't even realize that it went that far back until I started doing the research, because when we took field trips there to Old Salem as children, I mean, all they really told us was the story of the Moravians in America.
1: I'm assuming that, of course, back then they would have dressed a little differently. Do they still dress differently now, or is it just like a normal denomination? I guess I'm thinking of the Amish. Okay.
2: The only place you'll see traditional Moravian garb is during special events It's only for people who are, say, serving or part of the actual, not ritual, but part of the actual service or whatever, not just people attending or worshiping with them. So really, that's the only place you'll see traditional Moravian clothing unless you go to Old Salem because it's kind of a living museum. So
0: when you said that they're mostly based on like music and service, not just service as in a church service, but service to the community
2: Yes. Yes. They're very active in their community and they value service above a lot of things. When we get toward the hauntings, I'll tell you about their graveyard traditions because it actually involves serving people even after they're gone.
0: Oh, wow. Okay. Very, very cool. When the Moravian movement or when the people came over, where did they actually settle first when they came to America?
2: If I'm not mistaken, they settled farther north, definitely, than North Carolina, but they also settled farther south. Everything I've heard growing up was that they came out of Pennsylvania, and they got started up there, kind of in the same area as, say, the Pennsylvania Dutch, or a lot of the quake movement. But when I started looking, I also found out that they settled in Georgia as well, and then just kind of people came from up north and people came from Georgia. They kind of converged and started settling in North Carolina.
1: So they established this town called Salem. When was it established?
2: Old Salem was established in 1766, so actually exactly 250 years ago this year.
1: Oh, wow. Are they going to do any big celebrations for it or anything?
2: I haven't seen anything advertised, but I'm sure they will. I sure hope they do because it's uh, it's a really, really cool place.
1: So what did these people do once they set up the town? Did they have some kind of, were they tradesmen? Did they Were they farmers? What all was going on once they set up Salem?
2: Salem kind of became known as a trade town. They had a lot of goods that they exported, tools and metals and furniture, which that area in North Carolina is very known for with High Point being right in that area too. Different crops. I didn't find too much about it, but I know that tobacco went through there, but Mm. Basically, that whole area tobacco went through because Winston-Salem was the tobacco capital of the world for like 150 years. And I think we just lost that to somewhere outside of the country. I went to high school a mile down the road from a town called Tobaccoville. Wow. Yeah, that makes me sound real backwoods.
0: (laughs) I grew up right next to Tobaccoville and I
1: drive a
2: truck. I do not drive a truck. I drive a tiny car.
1: (laughs) (laughs) There's a tavern that was there in the town and it had a really interesting person who stayed there.
2: Yeah, uh, George Washington passed through the town. Uh, I'm not sure what year, and I'm not sure if he was actually president at the time. I know he had passed through the town. This was post-revolution, so I imagine if he wasn't president, he was very close to becoming president.
1: Makes you wonder why he was down there. If he was president, he I guess he was visiting each state just to say right. hi? Or it makes you wonder, what was he doing down in North Carolina?
2: I'm not sure. Uh, he was just passing through. I mean, maybe he hurt. Moravians are known for their baked goods. Oh. So maybe he was down there for some baked goods, some sugar cake, some cookies.
1: Are they still known for their baked goods?
2: Oh, yeah. We'll have to get you guys some Moravian cookies when you come through here. Oh. They're rolled about 20th of an inch thick. They're super mm. thin, little crispy sugar cookies, and they're awesome.
1: We're stopping. <laughs> All you had to say was baked goods. I'm there.
2: Oh, yeah. I got that. They got this yeast bread that they bake with brown sugar on top. Oh, and, mm.
0: Okay, Diane, you need to quit <laughs> drooling on the keyboard. Just saying.
1: I love bread. I looked at the Atkins diet and I went, I don't think so. And I you'll never be, bread. what's that
0: other one? Than, not the Neanderthal diet, but
2: Paleo diet. Yeah, paleo
1: diet. diet. Can't do that one either. <laughs> no. Nope. Neanderthal. But Neanderthal, pale, it's actually kind of the same thing. Paleo, Neanderthal, isn't that the same thing? Sort of.
0: I think I that's think what it means. I'm on the eat whatever I want diet.
1: Now, I thought it was interesting that they had set up these two different houses. You had the single brother's house and the sister's house. Now, here's what's funny. They called the the brother's house was the single brother's house, but I don't think they called the sister's house the single sister's house. So I wonder wonder why they didn't didn't specify these sisters over here are single too.
2: I'm not sure. I don't know if they classified single brothers because they were single men versus just Pre-marriage women didn't count as single. I don't know. I mean, it, it's it, almost like a these are the bachelors, and here are our women. Like, well, you know which what? Terrible.
0: It, it actually could be just because that's what women kind of were supposed to do. That was probably not back in a time when women had careers and things, so women weren't really single. They were just kind of, like you said, pre- pre-married. They're, they were just waiting for their husbands.
2: Right, right. But as far as I understand, women had a pretty large role in the church as oh. far as leadership roles. Oh, um, wow, that was, is
1: very... That's kind of past its time there, for sure, because... Early on, women weren't allowed to even speak in church.
2: Oh, yeah. And I mean, there are still some denominations of all sorts of religions that won't let women be leaders. And uh, at the time, you know, they were allowing women to take leadership roles in their church like musicians, which at most churches may not seem like it. But to them, I mean, a musician is a leader of the church.
0: This is back in the 1700s. Right. You know, when I first saw the thing about the whole single brother's house and then the sister's house, it kind of reminded me of like, Oh look! It's the
1: first YMCA.
2: <laughs> kind of. It was. It was like a mix of the YMCA and uh, a boarding slash trade school. Yeah, uh, this
1: building sounds really interesting. It like it was built in two different sections. One's wood. One's brick. Is that correct?
2: Yes, it is. And um, yeah, it's 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 an interesting building. Three levels. I want to say it's been a while since I've been in it. I used to go in every Christmas. They have a little, they call it the candle tea there. You can actually walk through the single brother's house. You go into where their church was in the single brother's house and sing Christmas carols. You go downstairs Mm -hmm. to the kitchen, have sugar cake and hot coffee, and they create a scale model of the church or the whole town in the cellar, which is Mm -hmm. really cool. It's kind of like a Lionel train set, but like handcrafted pieces recreating the whole town. Wow. Yeah, there's always, I mean, they get down to even, you know, these pieces are an inch high and they've got the tiny footprints in the snow. They get real intricate with it. It's a very interesting building because there are parts of it that seem more sturdy than others.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Now, they had a workshop or something that was behind the house where they could do all of their, I guess, woodwork and metalwork.
2: Right, yes. I'm trying to think what else is behind the house because they had the workshop there. I want to say the stable is lining up right behind it as well there, so... Well, I think I'd seen, it
1: seems like they did everything there. They had a bakery, brewery, distillery, tannery, and a slaughterhouse. Along with a plantation. Yeah. So, I mean, they had it all right there.
2: Oh, yeah, absolutely. And the more you go into the town, I mean, they had everything you'd imagine in a little town from the 1700s, you know. From the bakery to the craft stores to a shoe, a cobbler shop. There we go. Mm. Just where the shoemaker would be. They had a blacksmith. They had all sorts of little shops. They had what became Salem College, which got built up and is an all-girls school now. It's kind of a fascinating place if you go there. It's like a smaller Colonial Williamsburg.
0: Well, I definitely want to see that. I'd never really, because I've been plotting our, our road trip to the Carolinas and I hadn't really looked at that, but that's definitely going to be one of our points of interest along the way.
1: You know what oh, I yeah. think is interesting is this is a religious settlement and they had a brewery and a distillery.
2: Oh, oh yeah. The Bravians, uh <laughs> they like their drink a little bit.
1: I guess <laughs> so. Well, you probably can't drink the water. So,
2: <laughs> Yeah, at the time, probably not. I mean, they were the first people to settle in that area of the Wachovia tract of land there in central north carolina so i mean there was nothing out there i'm sure the water wasn't exactly uh wasn't exactly pure
1: what i thought was interesting about the sister's house which as you pointed out is now a female academy is the house was built in 1785 and they were supposed to build it the year earlier but apparently the tavern had some kind of a fire that went through it and so it was like okay do we start building the sister's house or do we rebuild the tavern what do you think they decided to do denise Well, of course, they would rebuild the tavern. (laughs) (laughs) So they had to wait and fire some more bricks in order to make the sister's house.
0: Sorry, girls, you don't get no home because we need some whiskey.
1: I guess.
2: You never know when George Washington's coming through. I mean, you need to make sure it's presentable.
1: Well, that's true. Better have a tavern if he's coming to town. When you go there, do they have it just set up for like a certain time period? Do they have it broken down into how it looked over different decades?
2: I'm trying to remember. They... They used to, when I was younger, give an exact year that they had it set at. I can't remember the exact period. I want to say it's late 18th century, early 19th century.
1: Yeah, because it, it said that it carried on like an as an everyday village until 1950. The way they have it set up now is kind of like how it was back in the 1700s. And so it's just interesting. Did they just decide to restore it back to that? Or did it was there a certain cutoff and then they just kind of upkept it at that same, however it looked then?
2: Right. I think with all the buildings, I mean, obviously not all of the buildings are still standing 250 years later, but a good many of them are. And I think they just thought, well, these buildings, they have history, they have character. Why don't we try to teach people that history in a way that's a little different? I mean, cause that's all Williamsburg does and that's all Salem does. They try to take history and make it more hands on.
1: Now the town has a symbol which is not the tobacco leaf even though we were talking about the tobacco. What is their symbol there?
2: It is a tin coffee pot. Good
1: <laughs> people. These are
0: really really smart good people I can already tell. Yeah. Well, <laughs>
1: I don't drink coffee. It just that's fascinates me. Who sat around and said, "Okay, we're going to have a symbol for the city. Let's throw out some ideas, guys." And somebody threw out a coffee pot somewhere. Somebody said, "Hey, And they went, let's go with it. But they really do a lot with this coffee pot.
2: Right. And coffee, I mean, coffee is kind of a part of their culture. When I said you go to that candle tea and you go down to the kitchen and you have sugar cake, which is a traditional like baked dessert, and you have Moravian coffee, which really as far as I can tell is just coffee with cream and sugar. At the same time, they drank that and they drank a lot of it. It was just kind of a thing that they established and it was at all of their big events. And so they kind of made a coffee pot, and so they said our symbol will be the coffee pot. They placed a very large tin coffee pot at the entrance to the town, which is still there. It's really cool, and it's seven feet, three inches tall, and if you filled it up, it would hold 740 gallons of coffee.
1: Denise wants to go swimming in it. Yeah, I actually
0: do want to see it, but, you know, it actually kind of makes sense that they would choose a coffee pot, given on what Stephen just shared, and also the fact that their whole denomination is about service, because... When you bring people into your home, a lot of people, not Diane, would offer them, say, why don't you come sit down for a cup of coffee or why don't we meet for coffee and it's a time to serve or listen to other people if you're serving them this this warm drink that a large percent of our our population enjoys.
2: Right. Like I said, it was a part of their culture and through the service, I mean, they were very attached to community. And every time that everybody gathered together, from what I understand, nine times out of ten, if it was a big gathering, there was coffee. And so they put this big tin coffee pot down there and they say that, you know, back in the 19th century, uh, they had a small boy that would climb up to the top of the pot and put boiling water in it. So it looked like smoke was coming out of the spout.
1: (laughs) Wow. Oh, can you imagine sending a child to climb up the seven foot thing with boiling water? (laughs) Jeez. That
2: was yeah, back it in the old days. Safe.
0: We don't do that now. <laughs> now we have like all these laws and stuff.
2: Oh laws. Who needs them, right?
0: But I just figured out too why I've never heard of the Moravians. What's that? Because I grew up in Utah. <laughs> so yeah, <you> <laughs> they, they were probably chased way out of town.
2: <laughs> probably so. <I'm> sure. <laughs> and from what I understand it's a majority, if not almost totally,
0: but Eastern East. oh, Eastern I,
1: mean? I was just laughing because the, the, the Mormons would the Mormons would have thought they were Satanists. <laughs> Oh, I'm sure, which is funny. Seven-foot coffee pot?
0: Seven-foot coffee pot? They have an idol. (laughs) No offense to any of our Mormon listeners, but (laughs) coffee and Mormonism are just like not, they don't go together. Two peas in the pod.
2: One of the big stories that they tell you all the time growing up in Winston-Salem was uh, during the Civil War, there was this huge coffee pot there, and a Union soldier was kind of out in the area. I don't know why he wasn't with his platoon, but he was kind of out in the area, and apparently there was a passing patrol of Confederate soldiers, and he climbed up the coffee pot and got inside, and he oh. hid from the passing patrol there.
0: Saved by the pot.
2: Yeah, See, no coffee's thing. a lifesaver.
0: Wow. See, coffee
1: is good for you, Diane. I wonder, you know, I wonder how they found that out. Did he? He must have told the story to somebody, and then they told somebody. And now I saw that they sometimes would use this large pot to boil <laughs> water for their annual love feast and of course i have no idea what that is either i'm like okay i don't know what moravians are and what is a love feast sounds kind of cool
2: it's uh for religious folks and non-religious folks alike it's become kind of a staple of the area culture uh during christmas Uh, sometimes at easter but the majority of times it's at christmas and what it is is it's basically a traditional church service and they'll get a lot of people into either Hope Moravian, which is the big church there in Old Salem, or a big church downtown like Calvary, Moravian, these huge churches. You go into the sanctuary and you sing Christmas carols, and there is a sermon which people choose either to or to not listen to, um, but it's just kind of a part of the season that a lot of people kind of look past their own beliefs and just embrace the kind of community aspect of the love feast. You do that, you sing Christmas carols, they give a little sermon, you drink coffee and eat love feast buns, which are uh, they're like a kind of a yeasty bread that has orange peel and cinnamon kind of baked into it, Mm. which sounds weird. And they're not for everybody. Like my wife doesn't like them, but I love them. My mom still buys me a box, even if I'm not in Winston for Christmas and just uh, brings them down here to me. They're really, really good. And so you do that and they do a candlelight thing and everybody raises up Their Old Salem-made beeswax candles, because that's a huge industry that they had back in the day, and they still carry. They make their own candles out of beeswax. Everybody raises up their candles and does the Christmas thing, and it's just kind of a bonding service, and they do like six or seven on Christmas Eve, you know, starting at like 11 in the morning and going all the way through midnight.
1: So that's cool. So they come in, they sing and eat. Wow. That sounds cool.
2: Right, yeah. And like I said, since their denomination is so based in music, I mean, (laughs) that's kind of a... a very important thing for them.
1: And that's the really cool thing about the Love Feast. It doesn't matter what age you are, children are welcome, and it doesn't matter if you are a member of their church either. They say anybody can partake.
2: Right, exactly. Um, they've always been very open about that. Anybody can come. Like you said, age, not an issue. Uh, in fact, they don't even care Not just that you're not a member of their church, but they don't really care if you even believe in anything. They just like to be a community. I mean, to them, the church is still about what it's about. It's also very much based on making everyone feel welcome and loved.
1: This town, obviously, has been around for hundreds of years. I'm thinking the Civil Wars come through here. When they first were getting set up, I imagine it was not easy. And so, obviously, whenever we look at these very old towns like this... Happen to have a lot of supernatural activity. So I'm assuming that Old Salem has a few things that are going bump in the night?
2: Absolutely. The whole Winston-Salem area does, but... Particularly Old Salem. It's wild. <laughs> it really is. It seems like just about every building, there's been some sort of report, even down to uh, Salem Cemetery, which is Winston-Salem's like city cemetery that is uh, right next to their property. Because the Moravian Church, their cemeteries are known as God's Acre. Oh. They're very different <laughs> from what most people think of as cemeteries. They're just in the ground, or laid on top of the ground, actually, marble headstones, all white. Nothing fancy about them, nothing sticking out, and they bury their men and women separately. And so they bury, uh, because in their belief system, in death, everyone is equal and we know no one once we pass on, just kind of the way they view it. And so they bury their married men together, their married women together. There's single men and single women together, and then, um, widowers and widows count as married. They have this huge cemetery out there, and literally right on the other side of the fence is the Salem Cemetery, which is, um, Winston-Salem's, like, town cemetery. There's some stuff going on there. People like to, it's a beautiful cemetery, um, a lot of really ornate, uh, headstones and mausoleums, and just a really cool spot. And so a lot of people like to go and take, photographs and you know you always hear about orbs and people report hearing that but I had friends in high school that would go there and talk about you know we heard these weird sounds sounded like somebody was screaming or I even had somebody tell me they saw like a figure floating above a headstone mm.
1: that's a little weird freaky. Uh, <laughs> just a little freaky
2: right and I've you know I've been in God's Acre a lot myself and I've never seen anything in the Salem Cemetery, but it's got such a classic cemetery look to it that it's always kind of weirded me out a little bit.
1: Did you clean headstones in that graveyard too?
2: Yes, yes I did. <laughs> that sounds so strange, I know.
1: You know, actually I'm friends with guy, a guy on Twitter and that's what his job is, is to clean headstones. And I I think it's kind of cool because it helps to preserve them.
2: Exactly. One of the, what I think is coolest things um, about the Moravian Church, and let it be known as I say all these things, I'm not a Moravian <laughs> I just think that their belief system and their church is such a fascinating like organization. But one of the really cool things about them is they don't believe that service stops in death. Each family member is responsible the week before Easter for cleaning the graves of their family members who are buried in the cemetery. And so they believe they are serving those that came before them and that they are really just continuing community with people even after they're gone and it's a show of respect and so my mother worked for a very very staunch moravian woman wonderful human being and she just recently passed away for 10 years probably i went out with her pressure washer i'd stick it in the back of my wagon it was a station wagon not a little red wagon that sounded weird um (laughs) but i'd stick it in the back of my station wagon and a lot of people are out there you know with brushes and soap and here i come with this big loud pressure washer in a graveyard i feel a little silly doing it but i want everything to be as nice as possible for these people they hold that's where they hold their sunrise service um, on easter sundays in the graveyard and so oh. they feel as though they're worshiping with those who have passed on and so they're very keen on making sure that those gravestones look nice not for pictures or anything but just as a show of respect to those who've passed and so I've been out there a good many times doing that.
1: That's really interesting that they embrace death in that kind of way. That they're having a sunrise service out there and those places should be really haunted. Apparently the people are hanging out and still serving and doing all kinds of stuff in the cemetery still.
2: So <laughs> Absolutely.
0: You know, I'd be interested to know if they keep if they kept the tradition of reading ghost stories on Christmas Eve because that's It wasn't necessarily like creepy ghost stories, but a lot of what we talked about when we were talking about that whole tradition is that it was because they felt that their loved ones were near because it was that time of year. So since they do all this other stuff over the holidays, I'd be interested to know if they do ghost stories too.
1: It actually would be interesting to know what their opinions on ghosts are. Yeah, that is true. If they think they're still serving, I don't know, it'd be interesting to hear what they say about that. Now, there is a legend that comes out of there about Something called A Little Red Man?
2: Yes, The Little Red Man. That is, if you grew up in Winston-Salem, you know the story of The Little Red Man. It's not a malevolent story, nothing like that. It's just something that everybody talked about. It's one of the few ghost stories that people actually have very specific details on, um, which I have written down right here. So on March 25th, 1786, which is super specific, they kept meticulous records. There was a local shoemaker, I think his last name was... Kersmer or Kirschmer, but he was helping excavate the foundation at the Single Brothers House because they were still building that. This is about twenty years after the town was established. As they're excavating the foundation, they had built up small walls. One of the walls collapsed and it killed him. Nobody really thought much of it. The reason people call it the Little Red Man—he was known for wearing this red cap—and so for years after this happened, you know, weird things would start happening around the building. Uh, people reported a tapping sound in the cellar, which sounds strangely like a shoemaker's hammer. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And I mean, people even saw a small man wearing a red cap, which is what the shoemaker had been wearing when he died. People see him running around the halls and things like that. They eventually converted the single brother's house into a home for widows. That's where one of the more famous incidents happened. One of the widow's granddaughters had come to visit. She was deaf, but she could still speak. She comes up to her grandmother asking these odd questions. Her grandmother Just kind of looks at her. And so this little girl knew nothing about the ghost, nothing about the story, nothing about the accident. But all she could talk about was this man in a red hat that kept beckoning her to come play. And of course, her grandmother knew the story. (laughs) She's
1: obviously seeing something.
2: Right, right. Like that would, if I were her grandmother, and oddly, maybe even if I were the girl, that would terrify me. Yeah. But I guess if you don't know the story, I mean, it could just be a man in the house who wants to hang out. Finally, that, that whole story has kind of been put to rest now, though. Right around 1945, a prominent city figure was showing all I could find was someone important, the house. And so if it's a prominent city figure, I don't know if it was state government, who it was, but Little Red Man appeared in the cellar they were very scared. They ran out of there. City official was super embarrassed that this had happened. And so he called up a local pastor. They performed an exorcism on the building to try to put it to rest. I thought it was interesting that they still referred to it as an exorcism. It's not a malevolent spirit. Um, The spirit was known for being friendly and playful, but he laid the spirit to rest. And ever since that day, uh, no signings have been reported.
1: Interesting. So it does make you wonder if it did provide him a process of leaving there and why was he stuck there to begin with that always just fascinates me when we hear stories about that what made them all of a sudden decide okay I'm gonna stop banging my little hammer around and I guess I'll leave because that guy said I could go
2: (laughs) right and I don't care what they say I mean I've never seen anything again but the cellar is where they keep that scale model I was talking about
1: and you've been Um, down there
2: Oh, yeah, absolutely. Now, granted, it's a cellar, and they used it for refrigeration, so it's a good 20 degrees colder in there, so that doesn't help. Uh. But it's just got a very eerie feeling, just these thick stone walls and growing up in the area and knowing the story. I think it's more psychological than anything, but it's still got a creepy factor to it.
1: I'm wondering... You know, we talk about the stone tape theory and how stone can absorb energy, and maybe that's what we see when it's a residual haunting playing itself over. Sometimes I wonder if it's because these old buildings are made out of these old stones, if they're giving us that eerie, creepy feeling just because of whatever they seem to have absorbed over all of those years. And if that's just what we're having reflected back to us, not necessarily that there's some haunted figure or shadowy figure that's haunting that location. It's just that we're getting this weird vibe from the actual stones that all these buildings are built out of.
2: Right. I never even thought of that.
1: Inquiring minds want to know. I always ask myself these questions. (laughs) So what else do we have going on there that would be haunting type stuff? I know that didn't you say something about your cousin had some (laughs) kind of an experience?
2: yeah that that one still as a human being creeps me out and it should creep out any human being she went to Salem College for only a year uh she left afterwards and weird weird stuff would go on there you know people would talk about portraits moving around uh which may have been a prank you know mm-hmm. uh sounds weird noises footsteps door slamming figures being seen like I said in my research buckle in uh <laughs> Because this is the one that terrified me. She had a friend across the hall and this friend had gone to bed one night and she wakes up at about three in the morning and sitting right next to her face is her roommate. And her roommate is sitting on the floor cross-legged, staring at her face and smiling. Yeah, she got out of there real
1: quick. Yeah, that is so weird. Was it just that the roommate was a creepy person or were they possessed for a minute?
2: I don't know. They never had any really indication that the person was a creepy person before. It just kind of goes along with some of the stories of people acting weird in the building. I don't know. And I don't know if anything ever happened in that building. I mean, being so old, I'm sure something had to have happened there. But now it's just an odd thing.
1: Did her friend continue to keep this person as a roommate?
2: Oh, no. I don't know. (laughs) After that, uh, (laughs) she uh, she made sure to get a roommate transfer put in. And actually, my cousin didn't get along with her roommate. And so they just switched.
1: (laughs) Okay. Well, that would just... I don't even know what I would do if I woke up and somebody was staring at my face. This reminds Ah. me of our niece when she woke up in her college dorm room and that she actually had a ghost scream in her face.
2: Nope. Nope. No. -uh. Mm
1: Nuh-uh. (laughs) Mm-mm. So this school has other stuff going on, too. I know that a maintenance worker heard organ music or something?
2: Right. Um, I read a whole big piece, and I can try to get you a link to the piece because it's really interesting. Uh, maybe put it in the show notes. But okay. this guy by the last name of Ko... Uh, He's a maintenance worker there on site, and they did an interview with him, and he was just telling some of his stories. Everything from – there's a place called the Bloom House on property that was the printer's house, and it is now a gift shop. And people have seen figures. They've heard people arguing and gone downstairs to find nobody there, doors slamming. He was putting up flags outside the windows one day, and from the second-story window, he heard what sounded like an old typewriter going. Weird. Weird. And looked inside and there's nobody in there it's just storage so he had those experiences he talked some about the school but he really talked about an instance where he and another fellow were in the church doing some maintenance work there on property you know they're just walking around the church doing their thing and they go to the other end and they're getting ready to lock up they hear organ and so he's thinking well crap somebody's got in here I got to go come out and so he goes in the sanctuary organ music is still playing as he goes to open the door it stops he goes in nobody's there so he leaves again music starts playing again he goes back in it stops and uh so he he just left (laughs) he got out of there locked the doors and uh as far as i know he still works there but uh, that always quite a scare
1: that creeps me out when a church is haunted because you just think that's the one place that shouldn't be haunted so anytime we hear about haunted churches that's always just weird
0: but not in right. a Moravian church though, because they're they have their that's true. They have their service right in the graveyard, so this is probably they, they the invite who played everybody, the including spirits. And it, it could be a res-
1: that sounds almost mm-hmm. intelligent though. That has say. to be intelligent if it's stopping every time he opens the door. Yeah, that's not right. residual. Who's the night rider?
2: Oh yeah. Uh that is the not ghost anymore. Um, but that's a story from the tavern, actually. Story goes. There was this guy that uh, stopped in the tavern one evening and uh, came in for a meal and room, and he was clearly not well. They actually called the doctor in to check on him and get him checked out, and the doctor was like, something's not right. Despite all their best efforts, he slipped into a coma, and he ended up dying before the morning came. And so they went outside, they took his course to the stable, they grabbed his saddlebags and put them in a uh, wardrobe in the tavern in case anybody came calling for his possession and that was it but they had no name no way of contacting anyone so they just kept them there for a time just because they didn't know what else to do a few weeks go by one night the barkeep is kind of closing up getting ready to lock the doors for the night and he turns around and there's this shadowy figure sitting at a table Mm -hmm. and you know he's a little taken aback but he Mm -hmm. asks, you know sir can i help you And the guy never really lifts his face. He just says, my saddlebags. And he gives him a name and an address to send correspondence to. Apparently, the guy took it seriously enough that he actually sent a letter. And a few weeks later, a letter came back saying, yes, that was a member of our family. We didn't realize he had died. Please send us our saddle or his saddlebags. As soon as he sent the saddlebags, you know, nothing was ever heard from the spirit again. But it was just kind of an odd thing of him wanting to make sure that his possessions got where they were going.
1: Interesting, yeah, so we just made that one-time stop to make sure get that to my family.
2: Exactly. I think that's about all that I could really find. I'd be interested to actually go on one of their haunted tours or uh, I got to get a copy of they've got some books out, you know the Ghosts of Salem and things like that. and I'd be really interested to hear a little more of the history that goes behind some of these stories.
0: With the history of this settlement and the success and peace those who settled it found there, it is no wonder there are so many tales about people staying behind. So are the spirits of settlers still around keeping an eye on their town? Do the craftsmen and women continue their crafts even in death? Is Old Salem haunted? That is for you to decide.
1: Well, we're going to go find out. Yes, we are. We'll definitely make that one of our stops.
0: You know, it's really cool, though. I was reading some more on the church service for that love feast. They mm-hmm. actually pass mugs of coffee down the pews.
2: Right. Yeah. That's
0: awesome. Oh, boy.
1: I'd be like, yeah, they, can I have cider? they come out cider? with these
2: huge trays and just drop coffee mugs. Well, not drop them. Pass coffee mugs down the row. They do the same thing <laughs> with the buns and the candles. It's, it's a cool it. thing.
1: Candles and coffee. That's pretty cool. I would be excommunicated because I don't drink coffee. Well, go be a Mormon. <laughs> <laughs> well, we want to thank everybody for joining us for this episode. Our very next episode, you all have been demanding, practically that we do this location. It's a location that we touched on on a previous episode before, but now we're going to give it the full treatment. It's the Winchester Mystery House or Winchester Mansion. Yay! (laughs) Stairs to nowhere. Exactly. So we are going to bring that to you guys on Leap Day. That will be our very next episode. And then we have a couple of reviews to share with everybody. First we have Saint Works Art, five stars, Short introduction, odd history, history on the day, and then location with backed up research followed by reported anomalies. This is what you will find here and it is done in a way that will want to make you turn up the volume and pay attention. History really tells a great story and the ladies at History Goes Bump have told it in a way that makes you want to tell others. And by the way, they've done a great editing job that most don't pay attention to and other podcasts need to follow their lead when it comes to nonsense that's aired. Keep staying strong, ladies. Well, thank you so much for that. I have a feeling that was Matthew. I posted one of his things that he did of the Haunted Mansion. That was really cool. Oh, that was very cool. Spooky crew. And then we have five stars. Love this podcast from Cindy in Wisconsin. Happy. Excellent mix of history and the paranormal. Diane and Denise do a fantastic job and are quite fun to listen to. I was referred to this podcast by a coworker. Thank you to your coworker. And have been binge listening to catch up. Hope to get to some meetups. Love the show. Keep up the good work, ladies. Cindy W from Wisconsin. Well, I have a feeling that we are going to be doing a meetup with Cindy. It's I believe she's joining us in Alton. I think so cuz a Cindy from Wisconsin has just signed up for a couple tours. And then we got another five-star review from Australia. This one's from Lulu Cherry. I really love listening to this podcast. The hosts are funny and have a beautiful connection that comes across in the podcast. Well researched, good listener interaction, super interesting topics that are presented in a fun, engaging manner. I always learn something new and I'm often very creeped out. My favorites are the stories from Australia. More, please keep up the good work. I wonder why her favorites are from Australia. Hmm, I don't know. <laughs> well, you know what? I believe we have another one from Australia coming up in March. I believe we're going to be doing Fremantle. So that'll be cool. Very cool. Stephen, thanks so much for joining us.
2: Absolutely. I love doing it.
1: I have been your host, Diane. And this has been Denise.
2: This has been Stephen.
1: You take care now. Bye-bye. This episode has been brought to you by our executive producers. We want to thank Pui Lee and Catherine Clark for your one-time donations. We greatly appreciate them. Thank you. And by the way, Catherine, we like to send out some of the bonus material that we do to people who give us a one-time donation, and your email bounced back at me. So I just need to get a more current email, the one that's not connected to your PayPal, and I will send you out some bonus material. Thank you.
0: Want to keep the spooks away? Give us a review. Society's rise and society's fall. When the time comes, one society steps forward to build a better future. The Wicked Library, Kettle whistle Radio, Night Story
1: Podcast, Prog Watch, Red Horse Radio, The Lift, History Goes Bump,
0: Listen, The M Writing Podcast. Society 13, Rebuilding Society, one podcast at a time.